This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dawkins and Grant Collins will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Good afternoon, everybody. Today is April 20th. Market was down today. Uh, Dow Jones shed 256 points. S&P was uh, down slightly, 0.68%. Saw volatility go up a clip, um, went up 8.04%. And uh, yeah, so uh, second day really of a straight decline. And in terms of the 10-year treasury, it remained unchanged. 1.566%. 1.566%. So it's been stable for a couple of days now. Uh, Grant, anything we should be looking at? Well, as we saw, airlines and cruise line operators really led the losses today. We saw United Airlines drop 8.5% after the carrier reported its fifth consecutive quarterly loss. Really, uh, no surprise there with a lot of travel. Uh, still not picking up to pre-pandemic levels. American Airlines followed suit as well as a couple of cruise liners. Uh, One fun one is over the weekend, we did see Bitcoin take a bit of a a nosedive and Tesla didn't nosedive, but but dropped about uh, 3% because uh, now they have Bitcoin on their balance sheet. So it'd be interesting to see if if Tesla moves with Bitcoin because that could be a, a volatile ride. Well, yeah, and then you also saw Dogecoin uh, just go gangbusters um, last week over a three-day period as well. So, who comes up with these names? <laughs> I, I I don't know. Uh, I I do like the dog logo, but um, but yeah. Apart from that, <laughs> certainly it's it's an interesting crypto. Um, one thing I, I, that I think is. Uh, is great is there's going to be at least a couple trading platforms are going to let individual investors get early access to IPO shares. Um, What we know this year is that uh, so far there's been, you know, a little over 90 listings. Um, Last year we saw 218 IPOs and that was the busiest IPO season since 2014 when there was 274 uh, why is it important that there's going to be a couple platforms that allow uh, retail investors to get on uh, when it's typically been, you know, um, banks and, and accredited investors is that at the end of the day, uh, the first day return for IPOs is is huge um, for last year. First day of return was 41.6 percent. So just by the fact of missing um, the actual launch, you uh, y- you, it does it does do a number on your returns it does but it it does raise some questions about smaller investors being able to access those cuz ipos in their nature are a bit of a riskier investment because it is the first time that a private company is is going to be offered to the public and a lot of regular investors are not going to be looking through the S1 filings uh, with the SEC or, or digging through their balance sheet to see if it's a good investment. A lot of them could just be uh, hearing about it from friends or like the company and not really look at the fundamentals because there have been cases where IPOs have, have fallen on the first trading day. Like For example, Facebook, uh, when it made its debut in 20. 20- 12 it was at 38 dollars a share 
And then by November of that year, it dropped to 18% before making a a long climb over the last couple of years. But it it is good to allow uh, retail investors the ability to to join the IPO. It'd be interesting to see how these trading platforms, I believe it's Robinhood and and SoFi are the two major platforms that come out and said they're going to let customers join the IPOs, but see their policy around IPOs that are oversubscribed because if it is a hot IPO, there's going to be more orders that, than there are shares. So how they distribute those equally across the platforms will be interesting to see as well. Yeah, you're right. Um, it's been Robinhood and SoFi. Uh, SoFi stated that they won't be taking a commission when their customers purchase early, um, early IPO shares, but they, they'd be charged 50 bucks if they sell their allocation within 120 days. Uh, it's interesting that Robinhood is one of these adapters what sets Robinhood apart really is, uh, you know, they actually do have access to cryptos on their platform um, as well, which is something that a lot of platforms like TD Ameritrade uh, don't have. And then, of course, you know, by the nature of just applying to the mass retail, uh, you obviously, you know, saw all those issues in terms of uh, risk capital they had when 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 it came to the game stock uh, and all the options trading. Um just three months ago. So, you know, they're definitely getting into some uh, riskier assets and definitely some alternative assets. Uh, and, and that's just, uh, you know, I mean, I, I guess they just have more tolerance. Um, yeah. And another thing we should mention is that ARK Invest is launching a space exploration. Uh, it's going to include 39 stocks, which will have traditional space plays like Virgin Galactic, uh, but then we'll also have some defense, you know, giants such as Lockheed and uh, Martin and Boeing. Uh, But they also definitely have a couple of companies represented that just don't seem to apply to space at all. Well, it's really interesting because if you if you think about space, a lot of what they're leveraging is satellite solutions for customers. And and because of that, it falls into their space exploration. It seems like a bit of a reach, but to your point, it looks like they're going to include uh, JD.com and Alibaba as well as Netflix uh, because Netflix has a lot of subscribers who have their uh, who use their satellite solutions to access customers and be able to uh, help drive broadband that they may not have access to currently. So it, it seems like a bit of a reach, but. Um, it does seem like space is on a lot of retail investors' minds. We saw Elon Musk company be able to launch the, the that, that satellite to the space station and, and back with uh, SpaceX. And, and there's a lot of talk about Jeff Bezos' company who's also looking to do that. Uh, I think space and space exploration, uh, it, they're, they're playing on that name a little bit more than what the is in the underlying ETF. Oh, yeah. I mean, Deer and Company was the one I thought was shocking. Uh, I think it's going to be a minute before anyone's um, doing landscaping, you know, in, the, in their home in, <laughs> <laughs> on another planet. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know why you have a company that makes tractors and backhoes. But um, but yeah, but it's, you know, definitely fascinating. Uh, they forego. There's several SPACs that have come out that are space related uh, that they haven't included. Um just because they want established companies, but but yeah, it's interesting. Um, Arc launched their first space exploration ETF. Um, 
we're well into the way of earning seasons. Uh, Goldman Sachs had a great Wednesday um, earnings report last Wednesday. Uh, the bank posted per share earnings of $18.60, which was far better than the $10.22 um, that was estimated from analysts surveyed by um, Refinitiv. Um, but yeah, uh, it seems like you know Goldman and, and banks in general are doing really good this earnings season. Well, of the six largest U.S. banks, Goldman had the the largest share of revenue from trading and investment banking. Uh, not not a big surprise there. Uh, for the past few years, um, retail banking fueled by cheaper deposits had driven the industry to to record profits, and we, we've seen that over the last couple of weeks. Uh, it, it is interesting to compare Goldman to a shop like Wells Fargo, where Wells Fargo has a lot of uh, really at the consumer level, they don't really have the investment banking platform like Goldman does. They're, they're more at the, the retail level. And because of the coronavirus pandemic, had to set aside uh, reserves with the anticipation of loan losses and, and, and defaults. Um, so we see Wells Fargo posted uh, uh, a quarterly loss in the in the financial first quarterly loss since the financial crisis, whereas Goldman, J.P. Morgan, City are all crushing their their expectations, um, led by Goldman itself. Yeah, and earnings, you know, broadly have seen pretty strong. Um, we're looking at you know thirty four companies as a last week um, had reported their first quarter earnings. Of those, eighty eight percent beat their first quarter 2021 earning per share estimates uh, and they beat it by an average of 22 percent um, and that's coming from some numbers from earning scout and typically we do see that companies do beat expectations um, but this how, how significant <laughs> their beating is uh, is pretty wild uh, and, and a, I think a big driver of that is because we saw a lot of companies uh, really forego their earning estimates based on the pandemic. And sure. so with with no clues from companies, analysts have become more conservative with their investments. And that's why you see, to go back to the banks, for example, JP Morgan was 48% higher than their uh, expectations. Bank of America, 25%. Citigroup, 28%. Uh, but then we also see companies like Pepsi was 8% better uh, and United Health was 17% better. So it it is interesting to see the majority of companies are not just beating expectations, but by significant margins. Mm -hmm. I, I know some people were had some concerns about higher material costs, so food vendors in particular worried about some inflationary um, items towards you know towards the end of the last quarter. But uh, but yeah, uh, everything that we've seen come out so far has been has been pretty strong. So. Uh, more to go, of course, but, you know, good initial signs. Um, but, you know, getting into higher higher material costs, uh, CPI has definitely shot up in March, and that's been very prevalent when you're looking at things like gasoline. Um, consumer price index rose 0.6% from the preview of this month, uh, but 2.6% up from the same time um, last year. And... Uh, the year to gain is the highest since August 2018 uh, and, and is well above the 1.7% that, that came out in February. 
and we saw gasoline prices go through the roof. They were the biggest contributor in the monthly gain, surging 9.1% in, in March. Um, but we also saw meat, poultry, fish, and eggs uh, in terms of food nudge higher. That was 5.4%. We did see Jerome Powell in 60 minutes uh, says that he doesn't expect interest rates to hike this year. Uh, I think that's kind of hard to believe, um, especially with all the the talk about inflation that we've seen. Um, and, and I think inflation is going to matter a little bit more because there's a lot of economic uncertainty. We have vaccines coming out. We have the new stimulus package. We have the talks of a infrastructure package. Um, we see Larry Summers come out uh, and say that there's warnings of, of overheating. Um, and it will be interesting to see uh, how the Fed is able to react to inflation because in their last meeting, they also said that they don't foresee a rate lift till 2023. Um, and we still have 8.4 million jobs short of the level of unemployment that we did in February in 2020. Um, so all things considered, inflation is the the gorilla in the room, to use one of your favorite lines, Drew, uh, that, that I think we're going to continue to be hearing about in the next couple of months. Yeah, but you've also seen the Federal Reserve Banks um, consistently under forecasts how quickly our jobs rebound would be as well, uh, which is important, you know, when you're trying to gauge you know, the level of economic activity. I mean, when you're looking at the second quarter of 2020, median responded at Philly's uh, Fed Reserve Bank survey uh, thought that the unemployment um, two quarters later would average 11 uh, percent. That number was 6.8 percent. So um, I do think that the Fed is uh, that that is a vaccine sign that they seem to be um, just really underestimating the level of economic and economic activity we have and, and the rate at which people are getting back to work. Absolutely. And, and and one thing we did, we should mention about the Fed, too, is is their buying of mortgage backed securities. So ever since the financial crisis, they had been uh, releasing some of their purchases and, and tapering off their purchases. Really, that turned around in, in March and now it owns one third of the mortgage backed security. And there is a lot of uproar about uh, that because housing prices have skyrocketed. Uh, last week's Google search for the question, when is the housing market going to crash, uh, was up 2,450%. And then also, why is the housing market so hot? Also doubled uh, in just a week. Um, so we are seeing that there is a huge shortage of supply in the in the marketplace for houses. Uh, and But also, that's also fueled by low interest rates. Uh, Drew, what's your take on is this uh, due to a lack of supply, low interest rate, mortgage rates, uh, or the Fed also propping up with the buying of mortgage-backed securities for why we're seeing uh, the U.S. housing market go through the roof? Uh, I think it's a little bit of all of the above. Um, not to mention there, there's there been increased mobility. Uh yeah, I mean, you've seen that 75% of the 100 largest U.S. housing markets saw their annual home price grow at 10% or higher. Um, and But you've also seen, you know, we've talked about the move to kind of some pastoral areas. Uh, Boise City was up 26%. Uh, Spokane was up 20%. 
Phoenix up 18%. Uh, and then you've also seen, you know, lower appreciation in, in cities like um, Chicago, Houston, um, Orlando, Pittsburgh. Um, really, you know, um, then uh, yeah, just kind of some of the areas that people people are leaving right now. Um, but but yeah, uh, I mean, what's 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 different, of course, is unlike what happened a decade ago, uh, mortgage underwriting is a lot more strict. So I don't know. I, I mean, last last time this happened was it was you know you're based on CMOS and then you have tranches and then there's prepayment risk and then there's um, there's all sorts of things that that ultimately led to the collapse of CMOS and. Uh, I just I just think that the underwriting and and those um, those markets are are you know a lot more buttoned up. So um, I don't know how much of that is going to occur. Yeah, well, I think there is. Uh, we, we are seeing a decline in mortgage purchase applications um, decline now after months of, of of it rising, and really that could because people are dropping out of the market because they can't afford home prices because home prices are, are through the roof. So we may see the the demand go down that, that we've seen. A, a big portion of this, I, in my opinion, I think one of the big drivers is, is that uh, home builders are moving slow with supply costs at, at high prices as well. Um, and then the supply is, is just nowhere near the, the current demand fueled by the, the low mortgage rates. Uh, so... We, we really have such a strong built up demand and, and really no supply uh, they, they, in, the, in the article that I was reading about the, the Fed under pressure for home prices on CNBC was, was talking about how bidding wars for homes are now the, the norm uh, and not an exception. And, and that's just pretty wild. Ha- having just purchased my first home myself, I think the housing that, that I went on had 10 plus offers, uh, which is just which is just wild. Yes. Uh, and one thing I guess I, when you're asking me, I forgot to mention is there's been a lot of activity in um, like international companies uh, functionally, you know, buying out rental properties uh, to fund pensions. Um, you know, you see that in Europe and China and, and Canada, uh, all actively investing in the U.S. retail market. So some of that supply is... Um, you know, being bought up by by foreign conglomerates in order to to, to fund fund pensions, um, which is you know a whole other kettle of fish, right? But uh, you know, ultimately, what we've seen is that January's price gains um, this year in every city were <clears throat> are above that city's median level, and um, a lot of them rank in the top quarter. Um, you know, all reports in those eighteen cities, so. You know, within the last 30 years, we're we're, we're definitely in the top 10 percent range uh, in terms of home prices. And having just bought in, I hope they continue to go up. <laughs> yeah, right. Your work there is done. So yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Buy, buying at highs, but let's uh, let's shift internationally here for a second, Drew. Uh, we saw last week that. Uh, Simon Baptist, global chief economist at Economics Intelligence Unit, uh, said that it's unlikely that China will get to the U.S. level of GDP per capita for the next 50 years. Uh, The China-U.S. power struggle uh, for the 
uh, top spot has continued to, to heat up. Uh, we did see that the IMF come out and say that China's GDP per capita is, is forecasted to be uh, a little over 10,000 uh, in 2020, and that's roughly six times smaller than the U.S., where it's 60,000 um, in the U.S., What's your take on if when China is going to overtake as the number one economy? Is this something that we should be watching out for? Uh, or is this just headline news that, that we shouldn't take a look at? Uh, no, I mean, um, in terms of purchasing power, uh, you know, in terms of from purchasing power perspective, it's, it's going to be certainly a long time uh, for China to catch up to the United States. But... Uh, in terms of, you know, it, you know, taking us over in the just the broad aggregate. Uh, I mean, we saw that they were the only major economy to grow last year. Uh, they grew at 2.3%, but of course we contracted at 3.5%. Um, you know, the Chinese, uh, you know, economy in nominal U.S. dollar terms is still expected to overtake us in 2032 uh, to become the largest um world's largest economy and in fact that forecast has gone down two years because of covid so it was initially 2034 uh, but because of china's growth and the rate at which they um, seem to mitigate the crisis and handle it better than any other major economy uh, they've actually brought that number up a couple years so um, yeah i think they're poised uh, to be in very good shape uh, in terms of um, gdp per capita uh, you know, it actually shows us spiking a little bit while they're, they're some of the wage stuff is flattening and over in China, but, but yeah, I mean, overall, um, you know, I, I think a lot of these forecasts are alluding to the fact that they, uh, managed to maintain or handle the crisis very aggressively, um, for reasons we've all talked about, uh, in the past, but, um, I think that's just showing yeah, absolutely. They, they do have such a larger population than us, which I do think has an impact on that. We have seen some tit for tat comments uh, from Beijing and in Washington, D.C. Uh, around who's going to be the wealthiest country. Uh, and it seems like the their, their first round of discussions were off to uh, to a rocky start. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, there's there's a kind of a saying in China now these days. It's like um, I'd rather be crying in a Mercedes than laughing, you know, in a bicycle. So I think that China looks a lot like we did uh, back in the 80s, um, you know, full on um, capital financing, very Gordon Gecko-esque. And uh, yeah, you know, growing. They've, they've been running hot for years. So. All right, everybody. Uh, with that, Grant, you think we've overlooked anything? Well, uh, two things. One is we saw ExxonMobil reveal a $100 billion plan to uh, profit from carbon capture, uh, really trapping carbon emissions from industrial plants around Houston. Uh, one big caveat is that it needs a lot of government support, including a new carbon tax that has little political backing. Uh, so it seems like a little smoke and mirrors from Exxon, considering uh, a lot of the calls for them to uh, be more, I don't want to say green, maybe carbon neutral, hard for a big oil giant to uh, 
to be green. Uh, and then the other big one, I think, is uh, the the talks of this uh, Super League. Um, it seems like there's a, a, a big financial incentive to have the uh, top European football clubs uh, join a, a Super League. Uh, it seems like they have a little blowback. JP Morgan, especially since it was going to be the bank that, that was financing them. Uh, it looks like they got a lot of heat over Twitter yesterday, uh, especially because the bank has a good relationship with the uh, the Super League's chief architect. But uh, interesting to see European soccer, which is probably the most popular sport in the world, most watched anyways, uh, change gears and and create more of a, I'd say more of a uh, American top league uh, than than the traditional league that they have there. Yeah, I actually heard a little bit about that on the BBC's daily podcast today. Um, one thing that you know I, I think is worth noting is that the deadline to contribute to individual retirement accounts and health savings accounts uh, is now May seventeenth. Um, so, which is the same day that you know federal income tax returns are are due, and um, so the IRS the IRS gave that guidance. So. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, so the filing deadline effectively moved to May 17th from, you know, April 15th. So, um, so you know, just another just another benefit there. Uh, with that, I will talk to you next week. Um, thanks for listening. Thanks for liking and subscribing. And we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WellFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.